Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. Very excited to welcome Brian Cully, the CEO at Lineage Cell Therapeutics. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure, Rahul. Thank you. And thank you also, Luke. Great. To jump off, we'd love to just start off and learn a bit more about you and how you got to where you are today. Well, thanks. Uh, so I've been the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics for about two years. I have about 25 years of experience in the industry. So I started out as a, as a bench scientist. My first job out of university was at the Scripps Research Institute. I headed up the road to UC Santa Barbara to start a PhD program in molecular biology, but I left early. I left that program with a master's and I went to work in industry at Neurocrine Biosciences. So that's where I cut my teeth in drug development and discovery and screening compounds, et cetera. I had this itch. I, I sort of always wanted to kind of be on the business side, the convergence of business and science. So I did a tour of duty in technology licensing for UC San Diego, and I, I picked up a master's in business administration at Cornell. And that kind of set me up to be a business development professional. So I did some product licensing for a few years when genomics was really hot, and then found myself working at a, a small publicly traded oncology company, which unfortunately had a, had a big failure shortly after I joined. And so I became the CEO of that company and orchestrated a turnaround. And that was the first time I was a, a public company CEO. This is the, the third time I've done it. And I just, I just love it. I just have a real passion for trying to bring new programs and, and testing products clinically. I think the, the thing I'm most proud of is I've actually was involved in running the largest ever clinical trial in sickle cell disease. I was 388 patients. So the human experiment is, is where I find the greatest amount of excitement. So thanks for having me again today here. Great. Thanks, Ryan, for that intro. So would love to maybe start off and, and talk a little bit about cell therapy and what you guys are working on now, but perhaps more broadly, where you see cell therapy headed over the next decade or two. Well, cell therapy, it's a term that's used frequently because it encompasses a lot of, a lot of different things. It is probably most well-known in its deployment in CAR-T for immuno-oncology, where it's been tremendously successful. We are deploying cell therapy in a slightly different way. So what we do at Lineage is we manufacture great numbers of specific cell types, and then we transplant those cells into the body to replace whatever function has been lost. So for example, the cells that we use are called specifically pluripotent stem cells. And I want to be clear that we don't actually put stem cells into patients. Stem cells are just starting material, just like flour can become a cookie or flour can become bread. These pluripotent stem cells can become any of the 200 cell types in your body. We manufacture those cells to become whatever we specifically need. For example, in the case of one of the leading causes of blindness, which is called dry AMD or dry age-related macular degeneration, the problem there is that your specialized retina cells die off. So we manufacture those cells. We manufacture retina cells by the billions, and then we transplant them to the eye to try to preserve or regain vision in that disease. And so what we call ourselves is an allogeneic cell transplant company. 
we grow again, they grow up huge numbers of these cells, and then we transplant them into the patient to try and tr- treat or cure whatever condition is affecting them. It's really interesting. And obviously, uh, it sounds like there's a lot of potential for that sort of technology and different indications. Uh, one thing I'm really just curious about is we keep hearing a lot of talk about challenges with the manufacturing process for cell-based therapies. Obviously, CAR-T, you mentioned, is a, is a good example of that. Can you give us a sense of how the manufacturing components evolve or change? in the approach that lineage is taking? The interesting thing is that there is a lot of awareness about manufacturing challenges, and it's attributable to some of the alternate approaches which are out there. So for example, one fairly common technology is to take cells from a patient and then manipulate them, expand them in number, and then transplant them back into the patient. But that's incredibly inefficient. You're talking about, on one hand, it's precise. You're not going to reject your own cells, but you're talking about a tremendous amount of manipulation and an expense building this personalized medicine. And so that's a challenge, and it gets people thinking about the cost of manufacturing. And some cells that people grow really only like to grow on a bed of other cells or maybe only in two-dimensional space, right? If you're growing cells on plastic, you can start to think about trying to commercialize products and you might need a, a football field of plastic to grow these cells on. So there are a lot of problems with cell therapy in its early iterations. Lineage has, of course, been aware of this, and, and we've made significant investments in our own manufacturing facility, and we've committed to solving some of these problems. So, for example, in the retina program that I described, we've been able to move the manufacturing onto microcarriers and into bioreactors. So I can take a three-liter bioreactor, it's about the size of a milk jug, and I can grow 5 billion retinal pigmented epithelial cells in there, and they'll be 99.5% pure, and they provide for us about 2,500 clinical doses. So the scale compared to the one treatment, one patient, being able to crank out thousands of doses from a little bioreactor, and then, of, of course, scaling up from there, you know, I can go from a 3-liter bioreactor to a 20-liter bioreactor. I can daisy-chain a bunch of these reactors together. So there is a big problem in cell therapy because the early explorations into it hadn't tried to address the commercial issues or commercial limitations. The first question is just, does the darn stuff work? So everyone took these really crude, very inefficient processes in order to get clinical material, which could give them proof of concept or really proof of principle in the human condition. And then once they saw some clinical evidence that, hey, cell therapy can work, now the industry is going back and saying, well, well, now we got to make it commercially feasible on the manufacturing side. So those are some of the examples of how the manufacturing aspect of cell therapy have been maturing in a way that are helping to move these programs a little bit farther along their life cycle and toward commercialization. Awesome. That's really helpful. And I I think it's one of those scenarios where there's so much promise and potential in the industry. And when you juxtapose to say small molecules, it's less about can you manufacture and make the chemical, but it's more about, you know, toxicology, et cetera. So it's great to hear that at least the approach you're taking helps ameliorate some of those challenges, right? While maintaining the novelty of the modality. Some folks we've talked to in the past who specialize in that one batch, one patient approach. I'd imagine the quality and compliance obligation changes dramatically and makes like your life a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier when you're able to sort of manufacture at scale. Yeah, it's a good point, Alok, because the FDA cares more than anything that whatever you're putting into person is the same every time. It's fundamental to the scientific process, right? You can't be putting different material. And when you're dealing with whole cells in contrasting that with using small molecules, 
the variability and the variance of the material that you manufacture is, you know, magnified thousands and thousands and thousands fold. So how do you control for that? And that, again, is another area of maturation and specialization for the industry. And because the things that you ask of cells is going to be different than the things that you ask of small molecules. So mostly what the industry is doing is looking at things like surface marker expression or whole genome expression, certainly karyotyping, right? If you're working with cells, you have to look out for genetic drift and mutations that can arise. But at the end of the day, if you have developed methods, both in-process controls to monitor your batches as they are produced, and then your release specifications at the other end, I think the industry is actually doing quite a nice job and, and has far exceeded what the FDA is looking for. I think the FDA has not fully appreciated that it can ask for a lot more from sponsors with respect to control and reproducibility of these materials, but they will because it ultimately it, it ties to safety. That's another aspect of the manufacturing. It's the analytical methods and, and the control of the material that you are ensuring that you are enriching the quality of your data by narrowing that variability. Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, with that, would love to learn a little bit about the programs you're pursuing today, some of the specific indications that get you really excited about the future of lineage. Starting again from pluripotent stem cells, which are capable of becoming anything. They can become brain, bone, kidney, every, every tissue in your body. There are three programs that we have today which are in the clinic. So we can manufacture RPE cells to treat dry age-related macular degeneration. We can also manufacture oligodendrocytes, which are the cells that help to myelinate the nerves in your spinal cord. So people who suffer from spinal cord injuries, they lose their mobility because all of these cells in an area of their spinal cord die off. So we grow those cells and we transplant them to replace them so that you can regain function and mobility and quality of life. And then thirdly, we can manufacture dendritic cells. And dendritic cells, of course, are nature's most powerful antigen-presenting cells. They're part of your innate immune system. They carry messages to your immune system. And we can manufacture dendritic cells into the you know, many tens of millions and put them into patients along with an antigen or a certain code or message that tells the patient's immune system how to identify some foreign material, whether that's tumor or whether that's uh, some sort of infectious agent. And so three different recipes leading to three different very discrete types of cell, but always beginning with these very powerful pluripotent stem cells. Great, Brian. And I'm always curious about the calculus and complexity involved in selecting, you know, which programs you start with first, second, and third. Would love to hear your perspective on why you decided with certain programs first and how you approach these types of decisions. Yeah, two of these programs we actually acquired shortly after I joined the company, Rahul. So it, it, that process was necessary, like trying to think about where can you be successful. So I believe that one of the problems that have plagued cell therapy is that in the early days, there were these great promises, right? Time magazine cover that cell therapy is going to cure everything from, you know, Alzheimer's to autism and, and, and all these really ambitious objectives. And that may yet become the truth, but it didn't happen very quickly. And my view there is that they were a little bit ambitious in the early days. And that's okay. That's excitement around new technology. Our interest in operating in the eye and then the spinal cord in particular is because those are areas where you have the least risk of rejection. You're putting a different cell line, so there's different markers, there's antigens on those cell lines, and you want the material that you transplant to be stable. And so by going into the eye, which of course has immune privilege and very few immune cells in it, you have a higher chance that you can maintain a graft there. 
And the beautiful thing about the eye is that you can look inside of it. You can send the, send the photons the other direction and you can look and see what's going on. So when we transplant cells into a patient's eye, we can measure so easily what is happening because we just look and we can see them. So for example, we have people who have now had cells that have been transplanted that have remained there for more than five years. And in fact, in our recently completed 24-patient clinical trial, we have had zero cases of either acute or delayed rejection of the cells. And we have gone, we have evolved. This is just a micro-reflection of a larger evolution, but we started with long-term immunosuppression. Patients were immunosuppressed for a year, and then we moved to just 90 days. And, and even more recently, we treated someone without systemic tacrolimus, which is what we have used in the past to immunosuppress patients. And you know, we'll be reporting this quarter on, on how that patient is doing. So there's a maturation, but the answer is that we're trying to de-risk, de-risk by having lower probability of rejection, de-risk by having easier monitoring of what's happening, and de-risk by reducing things that like common medications like this longer dose immunosuppression that can help demonstrate that these grafts are safe, they're well tolerated, they're stable, and ultimately they're functional and leading to clinical outcomes for the patient. To slightly change topics here around hiring in biotech and team building more specifically and perhaps more broadly in, in biotech, the nature of work has fundamentally changed over the last 10 months or so as a result of the pandemic. But I'm sure uh, some folks that are interested perhaps in joining Lineage Cell Therapeutics or perhaps other folks that are interested in learning from your experience, how, how do you approach hiring in biotech companies at the early stages when you're 20, 30, 40 people? What are some of the characteristics that you look for in the early days where you're trying to run really fast but, but have a, a limited set of resources internally? Well, hiring's easy and firing's hard. So I think that part of the answer is that, you know, not just lineage, I think almost every company does an insufficient amount of work at the beginning in evaluating. And I, and I think that's just natural because when you identify a position that needs to be filled or you get, you get the authorization for the budget to fill a position, there's excitement. There's, there's all of a sudden a sense of urgency and you get a bunch of candidates and they all look great and you filter down through some, you know, some interviewing. But now you're stuck with that individual. And if, you, if you've done a poor job in hiring, right, it can really cost you. So I think one thing that technology companies need to do is really invest the time at the outset to make sure that fit is going to work, that you're, you're getting someone who's going to be a good match with the culture of your organization. Second to that, and this is a little bit more personal to my approach, I'm less concerned with an individual's background. I, I sometimes jokingly say that all jobs are just learning vocabulary, but the emailing and the phone calls that go around it, the uh, intellectual creativity that goes around it, you know, once you learn the vocabulary, a lot of people can do a lot of different jobs. So I'm looking for a, a phenotype of a person who is a problem solver, who's creative, who doesn't get disappointed when bad things happen, who isn't afraid to, you know, who's not trying to be perfect, who says, here's a problem, here's one idea for how we can fix it. You know, sometimes little things start floating around in your vials. It's not about blaming people. It's about figuring out how we solve the problem so we can get the line going again. So I think that trying to find the right fit, and not every organization operates that way. Other organizations, it's all about, you know, punching the clock or staying up late or what have you. 
you have an industry here in biotechnology, which is largely an industry of failure. If I build a skyscraper in downtown San Diego, I don't have to, at the end of the $50 million investment, ask the city council if I can rent space. I know I can rent space in that skyscraper. But if I spend $50 million to develop a product, then I have to go ask the FDA if I can commercialize it, right? It's such a crazy industry. And we know that 90% of things that go into people clinically don't actually make it to market. And then beyond that, there are many that don't make a return. So it's okay to have an environment where failure happens. The, the challenge is understanding whether that failure is, whether it's avoidable, can you reduce the risk? What are the things that you can do to give yourself the best probability of success? So I try and staff the organization with people who have that kind of glass half full attitude. You know, it's a problem, but let's figure out if we can solve it. You know, what are the resources needed and does it make sense? Are we willing to walk away? And I think overall that's going to lead to better output for an organization. It's interesting you mentioned that, you know, there's one thing I'm kind of curious about, which is from our Prior earlier discussion, we talked a little bit about the experience you have taking biotechs that might be sort of on the wayward path and sort of bring them back into a, a really fast growth and, and successful mode, really turning them around. Curious, you know, since you brought the topic of personnel and broader issue, any sort of insights or frameworks you could share around that process and how to sort of recognize those sort of diamonds in the rough and bring them to fruition? Through my years, I've developed a few sort of, you know, pithy phrases that have helped guide me. Um, one of those is, you can only do what you can fund. It's easy to come up with great ideas. And some of those great ideas might lead to incredible products, but they have to be financeable. And so one of the things that I try to do as the leader of an organization is I try to have a reasonably high level of awareness of what's going on in each functional area. That doesn't mean I'm going to go into quality and tell them how to run the quality unit. It's just that I have to understand how quality interacts with the rest of the organization and what risks quality brings to the table and, and what solutions quality can provide to the organization. And so in thinking about it that way, I am the connection between the capital to do things and the list of ideas. If I can get more people feeding into that process, if I can get people who are vice presidents of divisions that might be thinking about how many molecules can I manufacture out of my synthetic organic chemistry group, if I can get them thinking about is it just a number of molecules or is it really just one that works well? It's a slightly different way of thinking because you, you have to, in this role, pull together all sorts of different factors and then make a decision based on imperfect information. There's nothing new about that. That's just the job of the CEO. But I think that being able to have high-level awareness of the different functional areas and how to interpret the message that you get from your divisional leaders, that is a really important area too. You need to kind of read between the lines sometimes. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that reading between the lines. I think you had alluded to uh, your lineage being a global company, right? Having offices both in Israel and in the US. How do you see cultural differences and communication and personality feeding into the reading between the lines you mentioned? You have to learn it. You have to pay attention to it. If you ignore it or if you're ignorant of it, you're leaving intellectual value on the table, right? Which means you're leaving dollars on the table. So early in my career, I learned that the person at the table who doesn't speak up, it doesn't mean that they don't have ideas. They, they may very well have the very best ideas, but you have to go out of your way to ask them because not everybody is like type A CEO and, and extroverted. And if you ignore that, you're going to have worse quality information animating your decisions. You have to learn it. And, and it's the same is true with cultural components. 
when we go through a budgeting exercise. Absolutely, there are differences when we do a budgeting exercise with California employees uh, and when we go through a budgeting exercise with our Israeli employees. It's a different exercise. But if you have an awareness about some of those cultural nuances, it can help you find the commonality or the overlap. And it's sometimes not easy, but that's okay. And, and I think it can happen even with, say, East Coast and West Coast. I've spent many years on both coasts, about half my life on each. And there's differences. And, and you need to be aware of some people who are going to come in and say, I need $5 million when they need two. And some people who come in and say, I need $1.999 when they need two. Uh, you know, you, you got to be able to figure out what the message that someone has really means. And, and again, that helps you have better quality decision grade information. And, and Brian, when you've come into these companies that needed a change in leadership, are there any common trends that you have seen either at the companies that you've worked at or even other opportunities that you've explored where you know it was maybe culture? So the scientific piece of it is, is obvious that that has to work, but any common pitfalls that you would like to share with listeners here? Yes, I think that if you go into a setting where you're essentially a change agent, the first and best thing you can do is listen, 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 listen. There's an organization that you drop into and they have history. They've got history within each other and, and they've got history that's personal to them. And you need to understand how all these pieces operate because what you're trying to do, much like Indiana Jones, who, who took the idol off of the pedestal and replaced it with a bag of sand. In this case, hopefully you're going the other way. You're taking a bag of sand off and putting a precious idol there. You can't mess up that balance for too long or you'll have catastrophic effects, including giant boulders running at your head. So when you're coming in and you're looking at the organization, you have to understand first, and I know it's tempting to want to make change and, and put your print on an organization, but what you first have to do is listen and understand it because you don't have the answers until you understand what the problem is more fully. Then you have to map out what the plan and the vision is. And this is something that I didn't do a good enough job at at Lineage, and, and luckily it's worked out. But it's easy for me to understand where I wanted the organization to be because it's similar to another organization that I had worked at or it was sort of like, you know, the all-star pieces of multiple organizations. So I had this vision, but I'm the only one who had lived that. I'm the only one that had that in my head. And it's really important that you convey that to the team and help them to understand what that looks like. Some people aren't going to want to change. A lot of people don't like change. So you have to help them to understand what the destination is. If they still want to leave or you still need to terminate them, that's okay. That's important for the health of the organization. And you need to be ruthless at times and you need to sometimes act quickly and not be afraid of problems because many problems don't get better. But if you're willing to ask the tough questions, if you're willing to have difficult conversations in front of someone, and I don't mean in an aggressive fashion or you know a disruptive fashion, just saying, Rahul, let's figure out if this is the right place for you. If it is, we're going to make it work. And if it isn't, we'll make that work too. It'll be okay. And so it's a lot about you know management and it's got nothing to do with science, but it's integral to having a functional rather than a dysfunctional organization. One follow-up question on that, because I think every single company deals with this irrespective of whether you're bringing in new leadership or not. How do you approach those types of conversations? And when do you decide to have those types of conversations? So obviously, you're having those types of conversations when you're joining a company. But at what point do you decide to make some of those decisions? And how do you communicate that new vision that you are trying to execute on across the company? What I do is if I'm thinking about a conversation, right? Let's say a loke's having a tough time, things aren't working out so well. 
if I say to you, right, if both of you report to me, and if I say to you, yeah, I'm having some difficulty over in this other department, and I, and I share that with you instead of talking to him, that is critical because you might think I'm doing the same thing with him about you some other time, right? So I have sent a very negative message into the organization. If instead I go speak with Alok and I say, you know, and, and it might be hard and it might be something I don't want to do and I don't feel like it and I can put it off and maybe it'll go away. But if I finally just sit down and say, hey, I'd like to talk about this. I've really never had that go poorly because even if we don't get to a resolution, it does create some awareness and it does perhaps start a process of separation from the company if that's where we need to go ultimately. It's human nature to want to delay some of these difficult conversations. But if you can get past that, and if you can get motivated by the fact that delaying it is going to actually be worse because you may find yourself talking to someone else about it, and you're, you're creating a negative culture in your, in your organization, and you, you just can't do that. With respect to providing the new vision, it's, it's communication, communication, communication. And this is still something I need to work on. It's a lot easier for me to be satisfied by you know, sitting down for two hours and you know, cranking out some material. It's a lot harder to say, oh, let me call a, a town hall meeting and I, I'm going to need to be prepared because everyone watches every move and they listen very carefully to every word. The thing that I've learned is that people watch the CEO very carefully. Everything that you do, even when you're not the main speaker, everything that you do, everything that you say, every little rise of your eyebrow is being noticed. And someone is thinking about how does that affect me? Is he talking about me in that example? Is he affecting my division? Is he going to increase or reduce my budget? Am I a priority? Am I deprioritized? Almost everyone is unavoidably thinking about what the CEO is saying and how that's going to affect them personally. That's okay. I do that myself with my board of directors. But you have to be aware of that because otherwise you're going to create problems in your organization. And they're not, they're not completely avoidable. You can't have a pristine, you know, virgin environment, but you may be able to reduce the risks and the concerns because people will naturally fill emptiness with, you know, negative ideas. And so, you know, part of my job is to make sure that they are excited about it and they're positive. And so even simple things like sharing, hey, this happened today is something that I think the staff is happy to see. And they, they want to know that the CEO is happy. It helps them remain happy. It's wonderful. Well, you know, obviously great leadership advice and management advice, especially for tough scenarios and tough discussions, which I think we all can certainly benefit from. Brian, I think we'd love to thank you for your time and your interesting insights and discussion. I personally am very grateful for the Indiana Jones analogy used uh, at the end there. And if you don't mind, we'll probably promote you as the Indiana Jones of biotech. And so... I think uh, given your reputation for turning around biotechs, there's something uh, pretty analogous there. And hopefully you're not offended by the uh, comparison to Harrison Ford. So I'm, I'm, I'm of an age that that is uh, welcomed rather than. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And, well, and, and Brian, thanks for pursuing some of these important therapies. My dad actually has AMD. So thanks to you and the rest of the team for pursuing the important work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you so much. We're excited. And, and if people want to learn more about lineage cell therapeutics, we've got some great patient stories on our website and it really is going well. And, and we hope we'll be able to continue for him and others. Well, thanks so much. Looking forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. 
Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.